The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. August 30th, 2000, Mark Lundy left a series of messages on his wife's phone, sounding increasingly irritated she wasn't picking up or returning his calls. When his phone finally did ring, it wasn't her. Instead, it was a friend informing him police officers were at his house. Something horrible had happened. Join me now as we take a look into the Lundy family murders a case that's captured the attention of New Zealanders for more than 20 years. You'll hear how nearly everyone was satisfied that a cold-hearted axe murderer had been brought to justice until everything they thought they knew turned out to be wrong. In February 2001, a passenger arrived at Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport all the way from New Zealand. Inside his luggage was a very unique and very important package, containing two small specks, each about the size of a grain of rice, he believed to be brain tissue. If he was right, the answer to a brutal double homicide was in his sights. The passenger was Detective Sergeant Ross Grantham of the Palmerston North Police Department on New Zealand's North Island. And the reason he'd just flown 7,500 miles to Dallas, Texas, was to meet Dr. Rodney Miller the only pathologist in the world who was convinced he could successfully test the tissue samples and determine their origin. Everyone else said it couldn't be done. So with no one else willing or able to test the samples, it would be up to Miller and Grantham to do just that. Over the next few days, Grantham lived and worked alongside Dr. Miller, staying as a guest at his home. The lead detective even acted as an assistant, putting on rubber gloves and participating in Dr. Miller's laboratory tests. But there was a good reason no one else on the planet was willing to do these tests, because they'd never been done before. Two swatches of polyester cotton fabric were produced from an evidence bag, cut from an ugly double XL purple and blue polo shirt after forensic examiners had noticed two small stains, one on the left sleeve, one near the breast pocket. These were the stains Grantham had traveled halfway around the world to investigate. The last time anyone had worn that ugly polo shirt was 159 days earlier, on August 29, 2000. The owner of that shirt was 43-year-old Mark Lundy. Mark Lundy lived in Palmerston North with his wife, 38-year-old Christine, and their daughter Amber, who was seven. By the year 2000, the Lundys had been married for 17 years. Amber was their only child, and everyone who knew the Lundys said the same thing. Mark and Christine absolutely adored their daughter and devoted their lives to her. Early on in their marriage, Mark had been a builder, but he'd moved on from construction and together he and Christine started their own business, selling kitchen sinks. 
Christine kept the books and performed administrative tasks, while Mark was the salesman. Part of Mark's role included making overnight trips to meet with clients. One of those trips would later be analyzed, questioned, and debated for the next 22 years. Outside of his family, friends, and legal team, very few people are as familiar with Mark Lundy and the story you're about to hear as Mike White, an investigative journalist and senior writer for Stuff, New Zealand's largest news website. On the 29th of August 2000, Mark Lundy sets off to Wellington in his car to sell kitchen sinks to clients. He books into a motel in Petoni, which is just out of the city centre. Christine uh, and Amber are at home. Uh, Amber finishes school. She was going to what they call Pippins, which is um, a Girl Guides organisation, but that was cancelled. At 5.30pm, Amber and Christine called Mark at his motel in Petoni. Amber spoke to him first, asking if she was allowed to have McDonald's for dinner since Pippins had been cancelled. According to phone records presented later in court, the phone call ended at 5.38. So they go to McDonald's and they get a, a sizable meal of McDonald's uh, at 5.43pm and go home. Amber usually goes to bed about 7.30, 8 o'clock. They both used to love watching a particular TV show at 7 o'clock in the evening called Shortland Street. At 8.28 p.m., Mark called a business associate, which cell records verify was made from or near his motel in Petoni. Meanwhile, back at the Lundy home, Amber was tucked in bed, and it's assumed Christine spent some time working on the family computer, as she usually did in the evenings. All we know about timings that evening is that the computer, the Lundy's home PC, was turned off at 10.52. And the assumption is that Christine has finished doing that work and has closed it down. She and then presumably goes to bed soon after that. At about 11 o'clock, a neighbour who's outside making a telephone call to his father overseas sees the back door of the Lundy house is open thinks nothing much more of it, but it's the middle of winter in New Zealand at that time. It's a bit strange given that Christine is uh, very security conscious and she's home alone that night. From his motel room in Petoni, Mark called an escort agency around 11.30pm and hired a sex worker to come to his motel. After their time together, she used Mark's cell phone to call her driver, who arrived at 12.48 in the morning to pick her up. The next time anyone saw Mark was the hotel's reception desk at 7 a.m. He then went about his morning in Wellington, meeting clients and making business calls. For Mark, everything on the morning of August 30th seemed like business as usual. Back in Palmerston North, however, things had taken a tragic and brutal turn. The next thing we really know is Glenn Wiggery, which is Christine Lundy's brother arrives the next morning. Now, Glenn Wiggery is a driver uh, and Christine does his accounts for him and was doing his GST returns for him that night, presumably. And Glenn calls round uh, to the house to uh, pick up the accounts material. Glenn comes into the back of the house and essentially finds the, the awful crimes and he looks down the hallway, he sees Amber in the doorway of the main bedroom and um, ventures down and sees what's happened. 
Glenn's discovery of the horrific scene occurred at approximately 9.30 in the morning. Both Christine and Amber had been brutally murdered. So Christine is found in her bed still dead. Amber is found in the doorway of the bedroom. She's come out of her own bedroom. She's dressed in her pyjamas and she's come into the main bedroom. Evidence suggests and isn't contested that she's been grabbed as she's attempted to run away and struggled so and killed in the doorway and that's where she was was found dead. The crime scene is horrendous. Christine Lundy has been in bed in, in the main bedroom. She was naked, that's how she slept at night. Her glasses were off and put on the bedside cabinet. And she's been hacked to death and she sustained multiple dozens of blows. Although the weapon used during the murders wasn't to this day never found, it's believed to have been a hatchet or some similar bladed tool. Essentially, she's been hacked so badly that her brain has come out of the head and fragments are found around the room. There is a huge shadow, a blood shadow, where the blood splatter has hit the walls. And there's a clearly defined patch in that where there is no blood splatter, which is where the assailant has kind of been standing and stopped that hitting the wall. After discovering his sister and niece, Glenn called police, who immediately began processing one of the most vicious crime scenes the country had ever seen. 150 kilometers away, just outside of Wellington, Mark was still casually going about his day. Mark Lundy was still in Wellington when he got a phone call from a friend saying, there are police all over your house. Mark Lundy that morning, that's the morning of the 30th of August, has been trying to ring Christine to find the address of someone that they need to collect money from and has left numerous voice messages on the home phone. Increasingly irritable, wondering why Christine isn't ringing him back. But when he learns that police are all over his house, he drives at very high speed back from Johnsonville at the north of Wellington back to the outskirts of Palmerston North where he's intercepted by police. When Mark was stopped by police not far from his home, they informed him that his wife and child had been murdered. Meanwhile, back at the Lundy home, a few peculiarities began to stand out to investigators. You would expect the person who's committed this murder to be bolting out of the house and leaving a blood trail. But apart from a, a few fingerprints, a palm print and, and a footprint, there was nothing really that, that suggested that. A heavy jewelry box that belonged to Christine had been taken from her room and a window near the rear sliding door of the house had clearly been pried or forced open. At first glance, it looked like a home burglary gone terribly wrong, but a closer look revealed that the jewelry box was the only item taken from the house. Other valuables had been left behind. They also found Christine's blood on the frame of the window that had been pried open, suggesting that the prying had been done only after the murders. And if that were true, it meant that someone had deliberately attempted to make the scene look like a burglary. News of the horrible tragedy spread quickly throughout New Zealand, with everyone wondering who could have possibly committed such a brutal and horrific crime. New Zealand's not immune from crime, but uh, in 2000, it doesn't 
happen very often that a woman and young girl are hacked to death in incredibly brutal fashion in a suburban house with no apparent motive or no apparent offender. And so it was not only newsworthy and noteworthy because of the crime, but it was because who could have done this? The funeral for Christine and Amber Lundy was held on September 7th, a week after their murders. Because the murders had become such a huge news story, footage of the funeral was shown on national TV, broadcast into the homes of the country's then 4 million residents. What they saw when they tuned in were images of Mark grieving hysterically, sobbing so uncontrollably he needed two friends to help him walk appearing so overcome with sorrow he could barely stand. Within days of the televised funeral, it was nearly impossible to find anyone who'd seen the footage who didn't think Mark had been putting on a giant act. But why? The only logical answer to that question was that he must be the murderer. From there on, it, it just becomes a fundamental. Everyone is suddenly an expert in, in whether Mark Lundy is guilty or not based on what they saw on those television clips. And it justified every other prejudice that they might have had against Mark Lundy. And it gave them a, a wonderful reason for finding some certainty about what happened to Christine and Amber. The dodgy husband did it with his fake acting at the funeral. But it wasn't just Mark's perceived performance at the funeral that turned the entire public against him. Fairly early on, it also became public knowledge that Mark had been with a sex worker on the night his family had been murdered. He told the police straight away, pretty much, I've been a naughty boy. It leaked out into the community, I think. There were whispers about it. But, I mean, he never shied away from it. He couldn't. He used his phone to to call a prostitute and she'd used his phone when she'd arrived and so there was no way of hiding from that fact so he fessed up about it it wasn't the first time that he'd done this but when it became public knowledge of course it just reinforced to everyone that he must be guilty for many people mark's extramarital activities proved he was a man of low moral character but then they discovered something even more damning something that seemed concrete. It became known that Mark had been in massive debt on the verge of bankruptcy with no way out. Shortly before the murders, Mark and Christine had decided to increase their life insurance benefits from 200000 to 500000 Now Mark didn't just have a cold heart, he had a clear motive, a life insurance payout. Almost exactly a year before the murders, on August 28, 1999, Mark made an unconditional offer on a $2 million property in Hawke's Bay on the North Island's east coast, his intention to start his own vineyard. But while Mark may have excelled at selling kitchen sinks, when it came to raising capital to support his wine venture, he was way in over his head. It was driven by a dream, by the idea of the wonderful romantic world of wine and owning a winery. And this suited Mark Bundy's image of himself as a businessman and someone who was going to be successful. But really, it was a ill-advised venture and one that came unstuck for him. 
he was very confident that he could buy this land, then get investors. So they formed a, a company and put out a prospectus, but the investors didn't come. And he'd signed kind of a, a non-conditional agreement to buy this land and didn't have the money and the, the clock was ticking down. He had the opportunity to back out earlier in the deal and not make it unconditional, but he was so confident that he would get investors that he just went ahead. He was not savvy. As I say, he was out of his depth in this. Things weren't looking too good for Mark. In the court of public opinion, he was already looking as good as guilty. If you ask most people about Mark Lundy, there'll be some name recognition, but what will they come up with? They'll come up with big fat bastard, killed his wife and daughter, acted at the funeral like a, a terrible actor, and hired a prostitute. Public sentiment alone, however, isn't enough to arrest someone for murder. Police needed something more. And searching for that something is what took Detective Ross Grantham all the way to Texas to test two small stains discovered on Mark's shirt he allegedly wore on the night of the murders. Nearly six months after Christine and Amber's murders, in a pathology laboratory in Dallas, Detective Grantham and Dr. Miller found the first and only piece of physical evidence directly linking Mark to the crime scene. But it was an absolute bombshell. According to Dr. Miller, he just discovered evidence that the small stains on Mark's shirt were Christine's brain tissue. And there was only one explanation on how her brain had gotten onto his shirt. Mark Lundy must have been the murderer, and now they had proof. On February 23, 2001, Mark was formally charged with the murders of Christine and Amber. The prosecution's case against Mark began with the time of death, which was established by Dr. James Pang, a pathologist who performed the autopsies. During the autopsies, both Christine and Amber's stomachs were described as full and identifiable food was still visible. According to Dr. Pang, he was absolutely certain that they died within an hour of consuming their last meal. Taking into consideration everything else police knew about the events of that night, including a brief phone call Christina received from a friend at 6.56 p.m., it was determined that the murders had taken place during a very specific 15-minute window between 7 o'clock and 7.15 p.m. Using this time of death, police were able to eliminate every other possible suspect in the murders. Everyone, that is, except Mark. At 5.30 p.m. exactly, Mark received Amber's phone call in Petoni. At 8.29, Mark called the business associate, which phone records also proved had been made from Petoni. Between these two phone calls was a three-hour window, and the estimated time of death placed the murders exactly at the halfway point. It was a powerful coincidence, but there was a problem. The timeline meant that Mark had made the trip that usually took almost four hours in just under three. Factor in the time it would have taken to commit the murders, stage the scene, and hide evidence. The timeline seemed highly improbable. It's 150 kilometers between his motel in Petoni, near Wellington, and his home in Palmerston North. 
5.30 is the earliest that he could have left to drive home to Wellington. He has to make this drive uh, after 5.30 at peak traffic coming out of New Zealand's capital city, driving on State Highway 1. He has to pass through numerous traffic lights, uh, built-up areas with reduced speed limits. He has to complete this entire journey at an average of 120 kilometres an hour. An average. An average speed of 120 kilometres an hour meant that every time he would have had to stop for a light or slow traffic, he'd have to make it up by flooring the accelerator and traveling much faster whenever he was able to. The reason he has to average 120 kilometers an hour is because he's shown to be back in the Tony Adders Motel at around 8.29 p.m. when he takes another phone call. His phone poles through a cell tower near his motel. So he has a three-hour window, just under a three-hour window, to complete this killing trip. Now, he's got a park as well, away from his home, because he's seen by an eyewitness. To corroborate the 7 p.m. time of death, police relied heavily on the testimony of an eyewitness named Margaret Dance, a 60-year-old self-proclaimed psychic who claimed to have a photographic memory. According to Margaret, she was certain she'd seen Mark running down the street, dressed as a woman, wearing a curly blonde wig. His face, she said, looked desperate and frantic, and the time, just after 7 p.m. So even though the three-hour timeline of Mark's killing trip may have seemed impossible at first, he must have been able to do it, and Margaret Dance's testimony was their confirmation. Another odd piece of evidence was discovered as well. Christine's computer showed that it was shut down at 10.52 p.m., seeming to suggest that Christine must have been alive much later than the 7 p.m. estimated time of death. However, a forensic computer expert determined that the clock on the computer had been deliberately manipulated to show that it had been shut down much later than it actually had been a fairly complicated maneuver that would have required some computer savvy. Although everyone knew Mark himself wasn't particularly good with computers, he must have done it, because who else would have had access to the computer? Looking closer at the computer's registry files, the computer expert was also able to determine that not only had the clock been reset, but the required maneuver had been practiced several times in the days leading up to the murders. It appeared Mark had deliberately attempted to mislead the investigators because it was Mark himself who suggested that they check what time the computer had been shut down. During the autopsies, dozens of blue and orange paint flecks were found embedded in Christine and Amber's wounds, possibly chipped off the murder weapon during the attack. Interestingly, Mark had always painted his personal tools in a way to identify them, a common tactic among builders. The colors Mark always painted his tools, blue and orange. Although investigators weren't able to find a hatchet or any other tool in the Lundy's garage that could have created the wounds found on Christine and Amber, police theorized he must have disposed of it somewhere. Evidence they did manage to find, however, was Mark's shirt. So Mark Lundy tells police what he was wearing that night, including the polo shirt, which is found in the back of his car. It's examined a couple of months later at Forensic Laboratory in New Zealand. Uh, the 
analyst cast a bright light over it, found these two specs, tested them, and one of those tests was to take the sample and uh, look at it under a microscope, and that showed badly degraded cellular tissue. He also wet the sample, and that was tested for DNA, and it showed very strongly that it was Christine Nundy's DNA, which is damning in itself because you think, gosh, how come Christine Nundy's DNA is so strongly on this part of the shirt? The amount of Christine's DNA was significant, suggesting it was more than just trace or contact DNA, the type that would be expected to be left behind from a hug or a simple contact. The sample of the tissue taken on a glass slide was examined by several pathologists. A few believed it looked like it might have been brain tissue, but admittedly, they had no way to prove it conclusively. Others outright told Detective Grantham that the cell tissue was too badly degraded to make a proper identification. Several months later, after going around the world to try and see if there were experts who could tell what kind of cells were on these specks of the shirt and being told that it wasn't possible. A Texas pathologist, Dr. Rodney Miller, who had spoken at a conference in New Zealand recently, offered to do some testing on it. And this testing was called immunohistochemistry, otherwise known as IHC. Immunohistochemistry would become the bedrock of the case against Mark. We asked Mike White, who's done extensive research into the subject of IHC, to walk us through and simplify this utterly complicated scientific test. And essentially, IHC is an adjunct test uh, to find out what kind of cell might be on a specimen. It's used to find out in cancer treatment, for example. And so what Rodney Miller promised to do was initially scrape some cells from the, the slide that had been taken and test them. But what actually happened was that the head of the investigation, Detective Sergeant Ross Scrantham, flew to Texas, stayed with Rodney Miller, helped him in the laboratory. They cut out the samples from the shirt. Almost at the last minute, about a week before Grantham arrived, Dr. Miller decided he wanted to directly test the stains on the shirt itself instead of the glass slide that had been forensically prepared. IHC, fundamentally, it's a way of finding out what cells you're looking at when you're looking down a microscope at, the, at a sample. So they do that by introducing antibodies, and the antibodies bind with proteins or molecules on the cells and that how different antibodies bind with the antigens suggests what kind of cell you're looking at. And Rodney Miller did this testing IHC, which is a very normal and common clinical test. The difference being that it's never ever been used previously or since in this capacity as a forensic test. Normally, samples taken from a human prepared under laboratory conditions and tested under laboratory conditions. This was a shirt that had been supposedly worn by a 130-kilogram man fleeing the scene of murdering his wife and daughter. It had been tested, wet, wrung out. Up to that point, IHC had never been used to test a sample taken from fabric, let alone a sample that hadn't been expertly prepared specifically for IHC testing. 
This test has never been used in that way in a criminal trial or investigation ever before or ever since, which does raise concerns about how legitimate it is. It's novel science. Results that Rodney Miller found was that this was brain tissue. You combine that with the fact that Christine Lundy's DNA was found strongly on the sides on the shirt, and you have a slam dunk. This is Christine Lundy's brain tissue on the shirt of her husband. Her husband has murdered her. With confirmation that Christine's brain tissue was indeed on Mark's shirt, Detective Grantham had one giant gap in his theory to answer. How on earth did only two specks of brain end up on Mark's shirt? After all, the crime scene was covered in blood, so much so that a blood shadow of the killer had been imprinted on the wall, yet not a drop of blood was ever found in Mark's car or his wedding ring, or on his glasses. To complicate matters even further, investigators were able to conclude definitively Mark's car hadn't been wiped down or cleaned in any way either. But that didn't stop police from coming up with a theory that Mark must have been wearing overalls during the attacks, and while removing them, had accidentally brushed his polo shirt with a bloody glove. At Mark's double homicide trial in 2002, Prosecutors presented the following versions of events and facts to the jury. They claim that immediately after receiving the phone call from Amber at 5.30 p.m., Mark drove as fast as possible back to his home. Parking his car about 500 meters away, Mark sprinted to his house, grabbed his hatchet, put on a pair of full-body overalls, and brutally murdered his family between 7 and 7.15 p.m. According to the theory, Mark removed his overalls, accidentally leaving two small specks of Christine's brain on his polo shirt. He then went to the family computer where he performed a complicated procedure to make it look as if the PC had been shut down later that night at 10.52 p.m. He then took Christine's jewelry box, staged a break-in, and left the house. Next, he disposed of the weapon, bloody overalls, and jewelry box in a location that still to this day has never been found. Then, according to Margaret Dance, Mark put on a curly blonde woman's wig and sprinted back to his car before driving at an insane rate of speed, all the way back to his motel in Petoni. Before the jury was set to deliberate, and this is important, the judge specifically instructed the jury that the 7 p.m. time of death was essential to the prosecution's case. If they had any doubt about what time the murders took place or whether or not Mark could have made the high-speed drive, then based on the prosecution's case, they must acquit Mark of his murder charges. The jury, however, returned a verdict of guilty and Mark was given a life sentence with a minimum of 17 years. Later that year, Mark's appeal was dismissed by the courts, and they added another three years to his minimum sentence. There was, however, a very small group of people who never believed Mark was guilty, and for years, they poured over the evidence and began poking holes in the prosecution's theories. At the time of the murders, I was 
just a newspaper reporter and, and it wasn't in my area. I didn't take particular interest in the case. But in 2007, I'd done a big feature about another controversial murder case in New Zealand. Mark Lundy's supporters, who are passionate but few, they contacted me after that and, and we met at a conference on miscarriages of justice. And they asked me to look at Mark Lundy's case and I said no because I thought the case didn't really have great scope for investigation. I thought it was a clear case where someone was guilty based purely on probably some of the perceptions that that most people still have about Mark Lundy. But Mark's supporters weren't concerning themselves with perception. They were focused on the evidence and they were adamant that the evidence used to convict him just didn't make any sense. They gave me some documents to look at, which I read over a summer holiday and thought, gosh, there is more to this case. At the time, Mike was a feature writer for a popular New Zealand current affairs magazine called North and South. I said to my editor, I'll need a month to work on this story. After a few weeks, I went back to her and said, I'll probably need two more months. And that's what it took. It took three months of investigation. And I wrote a long feature about the case. The feature story was titled The Lundy Murders, What the Jury Didn't Hear, and was published in 2009. In his article, Mike meticulously examined the major evidence piece by piece and seriously called into question the police and prosecution's theories about what had happened that night. Now, the police case has always been that this was a meticulous murder, that it was planned, and that Mark Bundy thought he'd committed the perfect crime. If he honestly was that clever that he thought he'd committed the perfect crime, man, he left a lot of mistakes in his wake, and man, he left a lot to chance and luck. Would you engage in a 300-kilometre round drive back to Palmerston North to your home, murder your wife and daughter, drive back to the capital city of Wellington and think that nobody is going to have seen you or noticed you or your vehicle? No camera, no road camera, no CCTV footage is going to have picked you up anywhere on the state highways, the busiest road in New Zealand. The problem is someone not only is driving at this hysterical speed, nobody reported or remembered seeing him doing this. And he must have been passing numerous other vehicles. He must have been, you know, tearing up behind people, cutting people off. Nobody reported seeing him during this mad three-hour return trip. It beggars belief that that could have happened. If that was your plan, man, you're a bit naive. And if you did do it, Man, you were lucky. Once Mike realized that Mark's infamous killing trip didn't seem to hold up under common sense, he began investigating to find out if it even made physical sense, specifically the drive to and from the Lundy's home. Was it even possible in the time frame police insisted it must have occurred? Numerous people tried it. Uh, police investigators tried it. I tried it. Other journalists have tried it. And no one's got to close to it. And it is physically impossible for this to have happened. But the jury accepted that it must have happened. The courts of appeal accepted it must have happened because there was this other evidence. So the illogicality and the impossibility of this drive went out the window. My naive and simplistic approach to that is if it couldn't be replicated, then in all likelihood it couldn't have been done in the first place. 
The next piece of evidence that needed to be examined was the 7 p.m. time of death itself, which again was the entire basis for the case against Mark. The first and most obvious problem with the time of death, why were Christine and Amber already in bed by 7? The explanation given at trial was wild, to say the least. Theoretically, Mark is convinced her, of course, to be in bed at 7 o'clock because he's coming home for sex with her. You heard that right. The official theory presented to the jury was that Mark convinced Christine that he wanted to come home to become intimate with her. The police stuck to that and said that Mark Bundy, you know, convinced his wife, hey babe, I know we just saw each other this morning. I know I've just driven to Patani, but man, I've got the hots on and I'm coming home. Can you be in bed at seven o'clock when Amber's, you know, somehow Amber's usually up, I know, but can you put her to bed and I'm going to drive through rush hour traffic because I'm desperate to, to have sex with you. Even though I have sex with prostitutes generally when I'm away, if, I, if I'm, you know, feeling that way inclined. This is what Ross Grantham insisted when I spoke to him in 2008. He insisted that this is still what happened. And he said, you know, this is normal for, for married couples. But Mark Bundy had two specks of his wife's brain on his shirt. So everything else just has to be accepted even though it's impossible or utterly extraordinary. Doubt surrounding the official time of death wasn't just logical, however. It was scientific. He had a three-hour window. The time of death from the pathologist was bang in the middle. It was 7 o'clock. Yeah, how convenient. How convenient. And the pathologist, James Pang, was very adamant that there was very little attitude for for shifting that, maybe 15 minutes, he told me. But no, 7 o'clock based on the stomach contents. Over the years, however, and especially after Mike's article was released in North and South, a growing chorus of pathologists and experts began expressing extreme doubt about the accuracy of Dr. Pang's time-of-death estimate, even ridiculing the idea that such a precise time-of-death could ever be ascertained by examining stomach contents alone. It's now generally accepted that Christine and Amber had about an eight-hour window from their last meal until their time of death, not a 15-minute one based purely on stomach contents. And what about the computer clock that Mark supposedly hacked? Well, after Mark's conviction, it was discovered by another forensic computer expert that the PC had been infected by a highly common computer virus. Once the virus was removed, the out-of-place registry files suddenly returned to normal. This meant that the computer had never been tampered with by Mark. He hadn't manipulated the clock, and just as importantly, it meant he'd never practiced doing so. An important piece of evidence presented at trial regarding premeditation, most importantly, it meant that someone, presumably Christine, had shut the computer down almost four hours after she supposedly had been murdered. The 7 p.m. time of death had completely fallen apart, and along with it, so did the eyewitness testimony of Margaret Dance. The claim that Mark had fled the scene wearing a woman's wig was now able to be seen for what it always was. Ridiculous. God, they couldn't find anyone that has seen him on this bloody mad drive. We've got to have someone that's seen him and Margaret Dance. It's not just colourful and, and slightly amusing now, 
it's indicative of what the police considered was reliable evidence in this case against Mark Lundy. And in 2008, Ross Grantham told me that he had no reason to disbelieve Margaret Nance's evidence. She gave good evidence. And that, to me, sums up what the police considered good evidence. Margaret Nance was good evidence. It was useful evidence for the police in convicting Mark Lundy because it corroborated the time of death to an extent. But was that really good evidence? Was it the kind of evidence that we want to see in our courts in New Zealand when a man's been charged with murder? Serious questions were also raised about the IHC testing used on the infamous polo shirt. Many forensic pathologists from around the world had serious doubts about Dr. Miller's ability to reliably test the shirt sample. Even Mark's supposed motive was called into question. It was revealed that a massive increase in Christine's life insurance benefit hadn't yet gone into effect at the time of her murder. This fact was entirely withheld from the jury at Mark's first trial, and there was something else. Mark's blue and orange painted tools were put through a series of stress tests at a government-run laboratory, basically slamming them around onto hard surfaces to see if any paint chipped off. However, not a single paint fleck ever came off of Mark's tools during this testing. All of these serious questions and new evidence were brought before something called the Privy Council in 2013, the highest appeals court available for Mark at the time. During the proceedings, the 7 p.m. time of death was thoroughly discredited. They also accepted the fact the computer had never been tampered with, and they agreed with Mark's defense team that the IHC testing done by Dr. Miller was questionable and unproven. The entire first case and scenario posited by the police as to how Mark Lundy killed his wife and daughter has been proved to be absolutely false, wrong and utter garbage. After all was said and done, the Privy Council quashed Mark's murder conviction 13 years after the murders had taken place, but he wasn't quite exonerated. There would be a retrial in 2015. Just weeks before the retrial was set to begin, however, the Crown Prosecution informed Mark's defense team they were going to present a new timeline theory for the night of the murders. This time, they claimed he'd left the motel around 1 a.m., shortly after the sex worker left, and the murders had happened somewhere in the ballpark of 3 a.m. No more manipulated computer. No more impossibly fast drive home. No more Margaret Dan's eyewitness testimony. No more secret plans between Mark and Christine to put Amber to bed early so they could have an intimate encounter. All of this was thrown out the window because none of it ever actually happened. And Mike White was there, watching it all at the retrial. I'm still struck by the fact that someone is convicted on one set of evidence, in one scenario, and then after years of painstaking work picking that apart, it's shown to be an absolute crock that is impossible. So what does the Crown do? They don't really start from scratch again and start looking for all other suspects, potential suspects, although they claim they did. They just look at how Mark Lundy can be shoehorned into a new scenario at a new time and a new way of getting home and killing his wife. And they just dispense with everything else that they said Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, 
you can be absolutely sure that this is how Mark Landy killed his wife at the first trial. They then just kind of gloss over that and say, yeah, that was actually rubbish. But ladies and gentlemen of the jury at Mark Lundy's retrial, you can be absolutely sure and certain that this is how Mark Lundy killed his wife and daughter. And to me, I just, you know, that's a, a big sticking point. And always was when we came into the retrial that they had completely changed the scenario. They had reframed how Mark Mundy did it. They had dispensed with witnesses that they'd relied on previously. They had thrown away garbage expert evidence that they had said was incontrovertible. If that doesn't give you some doubts right from the start about the efficacy and the honesty and the ability of the police investigation, then I'm not sure what would. In order to persuade a jury of his guilt, they would now have to put what little evidence that still remained against Mark under a microscope, a literal one. They needed the jury to zoom in and focus on those two right-side specks of tissue on Mark's polo shirt. Without that, there is no case against Mark Mundy. It's supposition, suspicion, and circumstantial. But the two specks which are deemed to be from Christine's brain Essentially, he has Christine's brain tissue on his shirt that he was wearing that night. Unless you can explain that away somehow, that man is guilty of murdering his wife. It was the most persuasive and devastating evidence that you could ever find against Mark Mundy. In what can now only be described as a strategic blunder, the defense team actually decided to concede that the specks on Mark's shirt were indeed central nervous system, or CNS tissue. So instead of challenging the IHC testing altogether, the main thrust of their defense centered around the idea that the samples had been contaminated after they'd been taken. At first, the contamination arguments seemed like a desperate cop-out, but if we zoom the microscope in a little bit farther, the defense team made a compelling argument. The possibility of contamination centered around three facts. One, other evidence from Mark's case had been accidentally contaminated with unknown DNA at Dr. Miller's laboratory in Texas. His laboratory is not a forensic laboratory and many concerns were raised subsequently about the cleanliness of it and there were also tests done in another part of, of the Propath laboratory where it came up with the DNA of a, of a random person, not Christine Lundy, no one in the lab. And even the Crown and, and New Zealand Forensic Unit ha has had to say this has been contaminated. So, I mean, you have to put that in the mix and say, well, if one part of the Propath laboratory can give you a contaminated result, can you be entirely confident that another part didn't? The second factor was the shirt itself had been handled improperly, stored separately from the rest of the evidence in Mark's case in Detective Grantham's office safe. This was considered a breach of protocol. It's not kept in the exhibits room where police protocol says it, it should be. I mean, we have rules or, or we don't have rules. Those are the rules about exhibits and there are thousands of, of crucial forensic exhibits that aren't being kept in offices. Three, there was a demonstrably high level of investigative and scientific bias at every level of the IHC testing process. The fundamental premise is, though, that police believe this is brain tissue. 
So they are not going to Rodney Miller in Texas and saying, can you just look at this sample and see what you think it is? They're going there saying, we think this is brain tissue. Can you prove this is brain tissue or not? So it's not an objective process right from the start. Rodney Miller arguably is not an entirely objective witness. And considering all of this, you need to have the context that police believed from day one that Mark Lundy was guilty. This was not an investigation that could be considered entirely objective for a long period. The arresting officer, Steve Kelly, says, you've been number one on our suspect list since day one. And and so that's the frame that you have to put the investigation and the attempts to prove this was brain tissue in. And Ross Grantham's trip to the United States to this one expert in the entire world after they've been to the FBI and US military and and Scotland Yard and everyone said, no, it's not possible. They find this guy in Texas who says, absolutely, it's possible. And I'll help you nail the bad guy. And that's what he did. Even if the possibility of contamination from the lab, or poor evidence handling, or investigative bias seems possible but improbable, we need to compare that likelihood to the likelihood that Christine's brain ended up on Mark's shirt in the first place, perfectly preserved 160 days later for IHC testing. IHC is notoriously unreliable on specimens that aren't well-preserved. And this is in all the literature from the companies that provide the antibodies for this testing. Your sample has to be perfectly preserved to have a reliable result. In fact, much of Dr. Miller's research in the lead-up to the retrial was focused on proving that it was possible, under the right conditions, for a piece of brain tissue to air dry onto a shirt in a way that preserved it well enough for future testing. The only problem is, the idea that Mark's polo shirt could have possibly provided the required conditions seems like a stretch. Amazing, immaculate, given that brain degenerates within seconds or minutes and it has to be air dried. And on a cold winter night, when a fat guy's running from a murder after killing his wife and kid, that's the perfect environment to drive those two specks of brain. Unbelievable. They can't have landed on his shirt because he's wearing coveralls. So they've been on the glove, degenerating, not air drying. And then at some stage, he brushes his glove as he takes off the coveralls across his pocket and armpit area of his shirt. That's how they get on there, and they are miraculously preserved forever. The explanation of how the tissue became perfectly preserved on Mark's shirt begins to sound like the forensic equivalent of JFK's magic bullet. Let's zoom our microscope out for a little perspective. According to the theory, Mark murdered his family then disposed of the blood-soaked overalls, the missing jewelry box and murder weapon in a place that no one has ever found. Yet apparently, he kept the polo shirt he'd been wearing and then freely admitted to the police exactly where the shirt was? Zoom out even more and look at the prosecution's entire timeline as a whole. At the absolute earliest, Mark could have reached his home just before 3 a.m., But this doesn't seem to match what we do still know about the stomach contents and the time of death. They were, after all, 
described as being full. In order to explain why Amber's stomach is full, according to the Crown prosecution, she must have been fed again a sizable meal around midnight or later when one of the courts challenged them about that how on earth can Amber's stomach still be full if she didn't eat a sizable meal much later after she's gone to bed. She somehow got up and been fed or asked to be fed again. The Crown Prosecutor said, well, she must have. She must have had more food, you know, a sizable meal, some stage around midnight or, or beyond for her stomach to be full. They accepted that there wasn't any other logical explanation, really, other than she must have. Even at Mark's retrial, many of the prosecution's theories of events relied on the same phrases that so many disproven theories from the first trial had relied on. Must have. It didn't matter if there wasn't proof. It still must have happened. I mean, this is how the whole case is, is worked. We decide who did it, and then we reverse engineer all the evidence to show he did it. And we make up stuff, or we fill in the gaps where there's no explanation with something that we consider logical, but is completely unproven. Mark Lundy's retrial lasted nearly eight weeks, and by the end, things didn't seem to be looking good for the prosecution. At the end of the evidence, there was a real general feeling that he would be acquitted, that the case hadn't been proven, and the judge's summation was very pointed, and I think most people accepted, was almost steering the jury towards finding him not guilty because there were so many grounds that were uncertain and couldn't be proven. And the police demeanor was really glum, and the defense was quite buoyant. But the courtroom was in for a surprise when the jury asked the judge to see one more piece of evidence. They asked to see a couple of video clips, and one of them was the video clip of Mark Lundy's arrest interview where the police show him the photos of his wife and daughter hacked up at the scene. Obviously, he's very emotional. Now, I'm not sure what the jury wanted to find out, but I know that during that video, when it was shown, one member of the jury stared the whole time, not at the video screen, not at the transcript of what had been said, but at Mark Lundy sitting in the dock. And it can only be, in my view, that he was trying to discern some kind of reaction, some kind of response from Lundy. After weeks and weeks and weeks of intricate academic-level scientific testimony... It seemed to Mike, at least, that the jury was still mostly interested in the one thing that had convinced everyone of Mark's guilt in the first place, his demeanor. After 16 hours of deliberation, the jury returned its verdict. Mark Lundy was again found guilty of murdering his wife and daughter, and his life sentence was reinstated. All the other evidence that has been amassed to show that it's very difficult to see that he could have been the murderer or unlikely or improbable or impossible. That has swept past them. The fact that, you know, what he was convicted of at his first trial has by and large been thrown out the door as complete garbage. That doesn't seem to make an impact on people. They just think, big fat bastard must be guilty. And um, yeah, it, it's sad. I guess it's just natural though, you know. It, we make instinctive judgments sometimes about people from how they look, from how, you know, what we might have heard from a snippet that, that someone's told us from a headline. 
and uh, and that's good enough for us. It's never been quite good enough for me, and I've always thought you've got to look deeply at these things and look at the evidence in real, real detail. And yeah, for my sins or whatever, I've certainly done that with the Lundy case and a number of others. Now let's zoom out entirely, push the microscope aside, step back from the table, and look at the big picture. Let's say the jury got it right, that Mark is 100% guilty of murdering his wife and daughter. Even if that is the case, we're still forced to confront some very troubling aspects of how the justice system operates. His original trial is particularly alarming. The impossibly fast drive, manipulating the computer clock, being seen running away in a wig by Margaret Dance, convincing Christine to be in bed by 7pm for an intimate rendezvous, even the time of death itself. And it's not just that these theories were eventually proven false. All of them were fundamentally far-fetched in the first place. And we can't forget the prosecution were allowed to change their entire timeline just weeks before Mark's retrial. A timeline they'd strenuously maintained for 15 years. And then there's the matter of allowing Dr. Miller's completely novel forensic testing to enter the courtroom. Testing which, 21 years later, has never been used in any other court anywhere else in the world. According to Mike White, Dr. Miller would not have been allowed to present the same evidence at trial if the trial had taken place in his home state of Texas. He's not a friends expert, you know. It's just nuts. He'd come to the other side of the world and give evidence. People who don't care about the reasons why forensic testing has to be so scrupulously done, when he says, I don't know squat about ISO numbers that are required for forensic laboratories. He didn't know and he didn't care about these things because he was so confident in his ability to do these tests. But, you know, he is the expert and he will stand on, on, on the evidence that he gave and, and his evidence has been supported by many other experts, so that has to be noted. And the final big picture aspect we must address is the obvious tunnel vision and bias surrounding the investigation. Nothing perhaps exemplifies this more than the unexamined evidence that was found at the crime scene. You know, I'll preface this by saying the police had an extraordinarily tough job. They have a job that I don't want to do, but I don't think that means that they can't be scrutinised, challenged or questioned. Christine Lundy's, when she's found, is found with 21 hairs entwined in her hands as she has defensive wounds to her arms, which shows that she tried in some way to protect herself against the attacker. Those hairs were taken and sent to ESR. They were never tested. They were never even examined. The hairs that were collected but never tested were eventually destroyed by police, making further testing impossible. Nobody has ever explained why they were never examined, why they were never tested, or why they were destroyed. It may not have been crucial evidence, it, they may have been Christine's hairs, but the mere fact that they were never looked at or tested is an indication, perhaps, of how this investigation was carried out and the fact that police believed they'd got their man and therefore didn't need to look at all other avenues. But it is extraordinary in my view that they could travel the world, spend millions trying to find evidence 
relating to two tiny controversial specks on Mark Wundy's polo shirt and couldn't even examine the hairs found in one of the victim's hands. Since 2009, when Mike first wrote about the Lundy case for North and South magazine, and especially after Mark's first conviction was overturned in 2013, a growing number of New Zealanders were willing to entertain the possibility that, perhaps, the jury's got it wrong. What I'm interested in is whether he's guilty or innocent of murdering his wife and daughter, and whether the evidence shows that. And in all the years I've looked at this, I still remain incredibly unsettled and incredibly uncertain that there is sufficient evidence that shows Mark Lundy is the murderer of his wife and daughter. And I think, uh, to a large extent, that was shown by the fact that the police had to abandon their original theory of how he did it. Came up with a new scenario. Yes, he was convicted again. But for me, I've never been able to get to the stage where I am sure and certain, which is the legal definition of beyond reasonable doubt, that Mark Bundy's the murderer. And I think there are so many concerns about how this case was investigated and the evidence that was presented against Mark Bundy that I remain of the belief that this, in all likelihood, is a miscarriage of justice. At the end of the day, Mark wasn't the sort of man who was able to elicit sympathy. Big fat bastard, killed his wife and daughter, acted at the funeral like a, a terrible actor, and hired a prostitute. Although it's a case with opinions on either side of the fence, there's one thing that absolutely everyone can agree on. If Christine's brain was indeed on Mark Lundy's shirt, and if those cells had gotten there on the day of the murders, then Mark is unquestionably the murder of his wife and daughter. But what if he's not? With only weeks to prepare for the surprise timeline change at his retrial, finding any possible exculpatory evidence to prove he wasn't the murderer was virtually impossible 15 years after the fact. Any CCTV, security or traffic footage from the 3am timeline has long since been erased. But if Mark was actually a calculated murderer, as prosecutors claimed, would he really have left the possibility of being seen during his 300-kilometer round trip in the middle of the night up to chance? One of Mark's earliest supporters puts it this way, Would you drive into a motel car park at 5.30 in the morning when your whole life depended on not being seen? And the fact remains, nobody ever did. But there was one place where everybody had seen him, on national TV, at his family's funeral. And in the end, perhaps that's all that ever mattered. Follow The Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and all other podcast platforms. If you'd like to support this show and get some extra perks, like early release and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. Our website can be found at mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at madnesspod. To listen to The Minds of Madness and other Wondery shows ad-free, Start your free trial of Wondery Plus at wonderyplus.com slash madness.